Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, and I'm a children's book author. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related topic. And in this episode, we consider ancient Greek tragedies. Do you remember reading Oedipus and Antigone in high school? If you were like me, and I bet you were, you spent painful weeks picking apart dialogue that read, you know, kind of like Shakespeare meets the Bible meets Sir Walter Scott. And then, <laughs> and the whole goal was to identify the hero's tragic flaw you know, like if we could finally all agree on the tragic flaw, which of course was always hubris, we could finally <laughs> move on to catch her in the rye. Or I mean, it was just such a horrible experience. I'm so impressed that you even remember the whole tragic flaw bit. I, I have so blocked out my whole entire high school study of ancient Greek tragedies. All I remember was the relief that came when like we closed the books, we'd taken the tests, everything was done. Yes. Yes. But this episode, we explore what if the point isn't to, quote unquote, figure out the texts and how they might be relevant to us today, but instead, if it's for readers and audiences to bring their own lived experiences of grief and trauma and loss to these ancient plays and to share an emotional and spiritual catharsis, that is the vision of our guest, Brian Dorries. Brian is a writer, director, and translator who currently serves as artistic director of Theater of War Productions, a company that presents dramatic readings of seminal plays and texts to frame community conversations about pressing issues of public health and social justice. Brian's most recent book, which just came out a couple of weeks ago, is Oedipus Trilogy, New Versions of Sophocles' Oedipus the King, Oedipus at Colonus, and Antigone. These translations were the basis for Theater of War Productions' most recent project, The Oedipus Project, which was performed and discussed in military bases, prisons, senior centers, homeless shelters, and was also presented this spring at the Nobel Prize Summit. I read these new Oedipus translations back-to-back, which is what Brian recommends because they're one extended family story, and wow, it was (laughs) nothing like high school. Brian uses contemporary language instead of, you know, highfalutin Shakespeare Bible speak. And so the language becomes accessible, which is the way it would have been for Greek audiences. The majority Mm -hmm. would have been soldiers. Mm -hmm. And the translations are revelatory. Once you remove the obstacles to understanding the language, you can more directly experience the story and the emotions of the characters. I actually read all three plays in one sitting, simultaneously dreading and dying to know what was going to happen next and cringing at the mistakes made by these deeply flawed and deeply recognizable people. It was really powerful. These are the reading experiences we all dream of. And who would have ever guessed that they would come from the ancient Greek tragedies? Who except for, you know, Brian. Right. He was right? He was able to translate the plays in such a powerful way, in part because he had a, a unique and just extraordinary education in classic languages and texts. We asked him about that experience, which took place at Kenyon College when he was an undergraduate. Here's what he said. I went to a lecture at Kenyon um, in which a religious studies um, scholar, a religion professor, 
was talking about studying Hebrew and I'd already started studying Greek and a little bit of Latin. And I just got this idea in my head. I want to learn the classical tripod. I want to go and study Hebrew. Now, mind you, I was not the most um, passionate high school student and didn't really live up to my potential, but I think there's great virtue and sort of late breaking interest in these things. Um, you don't want to burn out too early. And I, I got really excited and I started um, casting about to see if there was a person at Kenyon, a professor or um, a rabbi who might teach me Hebrew. And um, I ran into obstacles in almost every direction. We're in rural Ohio in a county that's you know, 95% Christian, um, aside from a few religion professors in the area and maybe in Columbus, there weren't a lot of people who could teach Hebrew. And the one person on campus who could was on sabbatical. Mm. And I almost gave up, but then I got a call from this religion professor that I had approached and she said, well, there is one possibility, but you'd have to go down and sort of submit yourself to an interview for it. And it's a retired emeritus religion professor named Eugen Kuhlmann. And Eugen Kuhlmann had come to Kenyon in the late 60s and was a product of the German gymnasium system, uh, was Jewish and uh, made it out of Germany um, and survived the Holocaust and ended up coming to the United States in that wave of sort of polymath professors from Europe and teaching at the New School for Social Research and ultimately ended up at Kenyon. And he was just one of these towering intellects that, you know, it would be exciting to meet him in any context, let alone like down a rural road past a farm in Ohio. And he'd had a stroke and hadn't had any students for a number of years. It was um, known that he had command of over 20 languages. And it was rumored, although I think it was pretty true, that he had at one point taught 11 classes in six different departments in a single semester. Wow. So I went down to his house. Um, I wore a um, sort of uh, tweed blazer or jacket that I'd gotten at a thrift store and it was way too hot. And I, his house was filled with furniture and books. It was kind of falling down and he himself was sort of, you know, not on his last legs, but he was, you know, had to shuffle to move around the room. And he sat down in front of me at his his dining room table and he grilled me looking at me through these Coke bottle horn rim glasses, like down an electron microscope. Mm -hmm. And he said, in the olden days, we studied the Latin in what you call elementary school. <laughs> We would have the Greek in what you might call middle or high school. And if we were good, we would add the Hebrew uh, when we became philologists or scholars. You have only a little Greek, barely any Latin and no Hebrew. You are a sophomore <laughs> in college. What possibly would make you think that I would take you on? He goes on for 40 minutes, just <laughs> busting me down in this kind of style of rhetoric. So reverse commercialism, it's sort of a G Germanic Teutonic style of rhetoric. And at the end of all that, after like I'm sweated through my tweed jacket, I'm looking at him, sort of my hand is trembling. I wish I hadn't submitted myself to the interview. I feel totally dejected. He finally says, but <laughs> <laughs> if you are willing to endure the hardships that we will undertake together, 
I would be delighted to have one last student. Mm. Ah. I stayed there during the summers. Um, I didn't go home on a lot of breaks, much to my parents' annoyance. Um, <laughs> I submitted myself to a course of study with him that was mostly extracurricular. I did get I did get some credit for Hebrew and a couple of other courses, and would go to his house for three or four days a week for five and a half hours a day, um, walking two miles each way. It went wind, rain, snow, sleet, hail, and learn to read slowly, exegetically, across languages, cultures, across translations and concordances. We would read five lines in, say, the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, over five hours, comparing them, chasing the etymologies of words, looking at errors of transcription. And just that act of slowing reading down to this very archaic and disciplined approach. Well, it just changed my orientation to the world. The last thing that we did that was part of the daily ritual of going to Dr. Kuhlman's and reading ancient texts, it was a requirement that I read the New York Times every day mm -hmm. and, um, and then find a way to relate what we had read to what was in the newspaper. Mm. Which is, it seems like the, it makes so much sense given what you do now. It was a real training Dr. Kuhlman would say things like, what is the secret of reading? <laughs> and he would then answer himself and said, the secret of reading is to close the book. And then he'd say, and in the olden days, we would close the book and we would have a cigarette or smoke a pipe. And we would say, now, what have I just read? But you don't smoke, do you, Dr. Brian? And we'd have these sort of proverbial exchanges, rhetorical exchanges. I think that was really the core lesson of that three and a half years I spent with him, learning how to close the book. I'd say that that's characterized how I approach both translation, but also my work as a director and sort of public facilitator of dialogue around the ancient texts that we perform and present. And can you kind of sum up for us what led you from those college studies to founding Theater of War? Sure. From a very early age, even at 18, I wrote an essay where I sort of put forth the idea that these stories are not uh, the possession of the elite few of us who study them in the ivory tower. As rigorous as my training was at Kenyon, it gave me no right to feel proprietary about these stories basic human stories that all of us share and should be accessible to all. And that we have a lot to learn from people who've lived at the extremities of the human experience, which many of these ancient Greek plays, I'm sure, as you know, deal with. So I set out to find audiences for whom ancient Greek tragedy might feel like kitchen sink realism. I also, um, in my early twenties, lost a girlfriend whom I loved and, her name was Laura Rothenberg, and she died of cystic fibrosis. She was 22, and I was 26. And um, the experience of being her caregiver and uh, being on every service in the hospital and helping her through scores of surgeries and her ultimately dying in our East Village apartment in 2003 on the night of the invasion of Iraq changed my orientation to these ancient Greek plays that I'd studied in college and I'd had this rich education with Dr. Kuhlman 
interrogating them and on a very technical level, endeavoring to understand them. But all of a sudden, um, after Laura's death, which was also one of the greatest gifts of my life to be present for her when she died and to be able to receive her love and also what she taught all of us who were around her about the possibility of making meaning in the moment of one's death. It just changed. It rearranged my molecules. It changed my relationship to these plays. And all of a sudden, these ancient Greek plays that I'd studied in uh, college and started directing, all of a sudden they spoke directly to me as if they'd been written for me. Hmm. And what they did for me was that they lifted me out of isolation. They helped me begin a process of healing moral injuries that I had incurred as a caregiver, uh, subjected to the way that we as Americans, you know, how our healthcare system works and also how we as Americans deal with death and dying. And um, I all of a sudden felt great solace in the fact that I wasn't the only person who'd felt morally conflicted in the face of someone suffering or who had met the limits of his own compassion in that process or who was carrying around us a, a sense of guilt or shame about things that I had or hadn't done at critical moments. And um, that was the sort of inciting moment for me that led me to say, well, if, if the Greek plays can speak directly to me or for me and they can allay my sort of hidden shame and moral suffering, then maybe they can serve a purpose for others as well. Maybe there's a larger audience than I'd ever conceived for these plays. Mm-hmm. Um, anyone who's experienced loss or uh, grief or um, who's missed the mark and made a mistake and ended up causing pain or suffering to people they love. So I started directing readings of ancient Greek plays in hospitals first. Mm-hmm. That was where the next big revelation occurred. I was directing a reading of this play, Philoctetes, which is one of the signature plays we do all the time by Sophocles. And it's about a wounded veteran who's abandoned on an island on account of a chronic illness he contracts on the way to the Trojan War. And it's about a sense of betrayal and loss. And it's about the fact that in order to be healed, he has to accept help from the very people and this very system that betrayed him. Mm -hmm. And I thought I knew what it was about. There were moments in the play that felt like they were written about me and about Laura. And um, I thought I was clever. And I thought that I, you know, I still had this sort of didactic um, ambition, like that these plays had something to say and that I wanted to put them in front of audiences so they could receive what these plays said. And we performed at Wild Cornell and these actors read the play and um, with a doctor who was helping me structure this performance for um, medical students as well as doctors and patients. We had a you know 45 minute discussion afterwards. And when I heard the audience speak, it was as if a veil had been lifted and I saw that the audience that has skin in the game, the audience that has experienced the extremities of life, who's loved, who's lost, who know what sacrifice means, the audience that um, for whom ancient Greek tragedy is not high poetry, but is kitchen sink realism, always knows more than I do about the play and about the translation. And it was this major revelation. What new things are possible when we approach audiences and readers with reverence for what they know that we cannot possibly access or understand. Mm -hmm. 
and a totally new approach for me at least to what it meant to be a practitioner of theater or a translator or a director emerged. And that is what led me on this search and on this journey that's now resulted in 28 other projects. Hospitals led to the military and military led to prison and prison led to end of life care and end of life care led to addiction and natural disasters. And, you know, a little bit later when I gained some more courage, we would go deeper and deeper into underserved communities, communities that had never heard of Sophocles and learn that actually education in some instances was an impediment to the direct efficacious experience of Greek tragedy. Mm-hmm. And so we started doing work on police violence, gun violence, domestic abuse, um, the opioid epidemic. We started doing work on the moral suffering of frontline medical professionals and the challenges of working in incarceral settings and being incarcerated. And the further this thesis got pushed, it was farther and farther away from the ivory tower where I'd studied with Dr. Kuhlman. And yet that requirement to relate the things that we studied in this very rarefied way to what was being written every day in the New York times was a thread. Mm -hmm. And the thesis is we've got it all wrong. We have an entire structure of privilege and education based on money, class and access. And after four years of reading at uh, ivory tower or an Ivy league school, people think that they know something about these ancient texts, but these ancient texts traffic and lived experiences that are impossible to really understand until you've experienced them. Is there something unique to these ancient tragedies that makes them transformational for modern audiences, you know, and that they've retained that power for thousands of years? Yeah. I mean, there's two things. I'm not so much of an evangelist for myth, Greek myths. I think every culture has myths that are, potent and I wouldn't value one over another. But the one thing the Greeks did that very few other cultures have done on the scale that they did it is they created an amphitheater. And in Greek, an amphitheatron is a place where I see you and you see me. Amphi, both directions, theatron, seeing place. We see each other. We see our own experiences reflected in the plays that are performed on stage where it's possible to even see ourselves by stepping back from the roles that we are playing made visible by the actors on stage. I go on to argue in my book, The Theater of War, that because the audience would have been predominantly men, if not all men, and also that it was compulsory military service and because the Greeks were at war for 80 out of 100 years in the fifth century, There was a deep well of experience of moral suffering, of grief, of loss, of violence that rendered these plays deeply accessible to the people who were watching them. Mm -hmm. So the Greeks built this technology, I call it an ancient technology, for the communalization of trauma. And the plays are not like on their own necessarily the answer to trauma. It's the act of reading them and hearing them read and then also being in a space where I see you and you see me and where we then acknowledge collectively the truth of the things that the plays are speaking to that I think people are released from the bondage that I experienced in my early 20s of feeling 
isolated and alone. And the one thing that I've seen about trauma over the last um, 15 years of doing this work is almost uniformly anyone who's experienced trauma feels that they are the only person on the planet who's ever felt this much pain, who's ever felt this much disconnect, who's ever felt this much shame. The Greek plays kind of normalize and give vocabulary and syntax to and provide a way of talking about things that contemporary people don't really know how to talk about in productive ways. And the question that I was asking before I lost my girlfriend and I ended up start directing my translations in hospitals was, how do I make this relevant to contemporary audiences? And I stopped asking that question and I started asking a new one. The question is, for whom are we telling the story? Mm-hmm. And once I started asking, for whom are we telling the story? I started asking other questions like, who has the right to be speaking? Whose stories are these? Once I saw that it was inevitably always the young person with his feet up on the chair in front of him, listening in one ear to music while watching the play, laughing at the moments where the acculturated audience thought it was inappropriate to laugh, who'd never heard of Sophocles, who inevitably ended up in the discussion raising his or her hand and explicating the play in a way that no acculturated, educated, privileged person ever could. I think there's an enormous value to the strategy of telling ancient stories to contemporary audiences, because in doing so, we're not saying to the audience, this is you. We're just putting this ancient, somewhat strange experience up in front of the audience and asking the audience, what do you see of yourselves in this? Yeah. Yeah. There's a discussion with the audience after every theater of war production performance. Can you describe those discussions for people who aren't familiar with them? Yeah. So in our model, the lights are up on the audience. The audience lights are up on the actors. Sometimes they're readings at a table and sometimes they're fully staged productions and sometimes they're on Zoom. The performance usually lasts around 45 minutes to an hour. And then as soon as the performance is over, the actors go away because actors are kryptonite to dialogue. All of us are. Talking about process has become the go-to mode of how we consume culture in the United States and the world. It's like, it seemingly we have infinite appetite to talk about artistic process, which I think is a kind of evasive move so we don't actually acknowledge the spiritual experience we just had in the room. So actors go away in a very deliberate way because They've done their thing. They've, they've served the audience by performing. And immediately, as soon as the actors go sit in the audience, we bring up from the audience four or five people who have lived in some direct way the experiences the Greek tragedy is speaking to. And they are not people on book tour. They are not PhDs. They are not heads of institutions or high-ranked members of their communities. They're often people at the street level, the line level, you know, an enlisted soldier, a former gang member, someone who's experienced homelessness, someone who's experienced domestic violence, someone who's been in and out of recovery. And we ask them not to prepare and to listen to the play and to note things that resonate with them and then to introduce themselves and respond from their hearts and their guts to what they heard and saw in the play that spoke to their own experiences across time and to be comfortable 
not sounding brilliant because by doing that, they're modeling for the audience what we then ask the audience to do afterward. Mm-hmm. So the panelists do that. They launch the conversation with their gut responses. And then I go out in the audience and some of my co-facilitators go out in the audience and we ask the audience questions. Why do you think Sophocles wrote this play and staged it for 17,000 citizen soldiers in a century in which they saw nearly 80 years of war? What was he trying to say? And then the audience members start to stand up and they respond to the questions. They don't ask questions of the panel. It's not an academic exercise. They interpret the play. And this is why I've come to see that our model actually has room for every political perspective. I mean, in the last eight months, we had AOC tweet about one of our events. And we had a Republican mayor in Mount Vernon, Ohio, in a county that voted 72% for Trump, name a day after theater of war production. The reason that there's room for everyone in our tent is because we're not asking people to agree during this discussion. We're honoring the fact that everyone is entitled to interpret the play. And the whole model isn't about affixing meaning to the ancient Greek plays. It's honoring the infinite possibility of interpretation in every room. I would argue that the real performance is in the discussion. Mm -hmm. When people get up and get vulnerable and share things they've never shared in private, let alone in front of a thousand people and weave their comments into their interpretations of the play and quote from the play. And I mean, the first person who ever did this was at a theater of war performance in San Diego for 400 Marines and their spouses were, performing Sophocles, Ajax, and Philoctetes, which are two war plays. Um, After the performance, one of the first people to speak was a military spouse. And she said, hello, my name is Marcel. I'm the proud mother of a Marine and the wife of a Navy SEAL. And my husband went away to war. And each time over those four times he went to war, he came back dragging invisible bodies into our house. Just like in the play. Mm. And to quote from the play, Our Home is a Slaughterhouse, which is my translation into a kind of modern vernacular. So that's exemplary of what I'm talking about. A spouse can name the truth by using the vocabulary and the syntax of the translation that she just heard perform. And in so doing, she can give permission to all the rest of the spouses in the room to follow her courageous lead. Mm-hmm. And, and the room's just open because we all need I mean, permission is not the right word. We all need encouragement. One of the things that Greek plays do when the actors commit to the emotional requirements of them, going to 20, you know, way past 10, essentially we're saying to the audience, the actors have already gone this far. They've moved the walls of the room back. Just meet us halfway. It's fine. This is a place where we can actually express our grief. The note that I give actors before they go on stage in front of these audiences is I go up and I whisper in their ear often, make them wish they'd never come. Mm. Yeah, we were going to ask you about that. (laughs) (laughs) Like sometimes in my um, translations, you'll see that instead of translating what's in the Greek, I just write an inhuman cry. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's leaving room for the actors to do their job. Mm. Sometimes it's leaving room for the reader to do theirs. In this instance, you know, have a sound emanate from your body that you've never heard before for which you may be embarrassed afterwards. And that's an act of service because if for a a brief moment, we've made the audience wish they'd never come. If everyone is scanning for the exits for a brief moment, 
Well, then in our model, because there's a discussion immediately afterwards, we can now then interrogate what makes us so uncomfortable. And the utility of ancient Greek tragedy is it can make us profoundly uncomfortable to watch it. And I think that's one of the reasons why it stood the test of time. Mm -hmm. Actually, this thing that happened in the 20th century, the late 19th century to the current moment in the 21st century, where when we go to the theater, we think that it means plunging the audience into silence and darkness and never hearing from them, except in these highly legislated moments that are often really painful because we don't know how to have discussions after cultural events, because they're usually one-way streams, that that was a, like a wrong turn, that we've lost touch with the power of what storytelling does as a technology. And the way to recapture that is to turn the damn lights back on and to lift people out of isolation and silence and to empower them to be the ones who are speaking and to honor their interpretations of what they're seeing. Right. You've said that these conventions of remaining silent, the audience remaining silent during a performance is a kind of oppression. I would say it's a kind of violence. Ooh, say more. <laughs> I wish there weren't a pandemic, obviously. But one of the things the pandemic accelerated and gave us was just stripping away all of the structures of oppression that are built into storytelling in the theater. And by that, I mean, when you enter a theater, you walk past often a security apparatus. And if you've had any problem with the law or any fear for your life and respect to the law, walking past a security guard of any type already sends a message to you as an individual. So no matter how many free tickets you give out, no matter how much outreach you do to underserved quote unquote communities, making people walk past a security guard is an act of violence. Then you walk up to a bulletproof glass window, at least in New York city, you know, the so-called public theater. Yeah. And you have this commodified transaction where you pay money and you receive a ticket. And already that changes the dynamics of what's going to happen next. Mm. Mm -hmm. And then in our conventions today, whether it's a community theater or it's a Broadway theater, you then walk down a hallway or corridor to a theater space where you are then often, at least my experience, accosted by people with clipboards and walkie talkies who are barking orders at you, telling you when to use the bathroom and to turn off your cell phones and legislating how you're to behave in the space. And then there's an announcement and then the lights go out. And I mean, there are even actors now who've been sort of trained in this model who will stop a performance if someone hiccups or coughs or their cell phone goes off as if that's some kind of active aggression. But the aggression is wholly, I think, baked into a model that silences the audience, legislates how it speaks and creates an environment where if you're not acculturated, if you don't have the social capital to feel confident entering that space, then you know, your experience entering some of these even nonprofit theaters is one of profound anxiety. Julie, I think, you know, I've started going to indoor performances again this fall, and I have not stopped thinking about Brian's description of the violence of theater going norms. I had never thought about it before, but yes, we are marched through security and told where to sit and when to go to the bathroom and to be silent. I can totally see the trail of breadcrumbs that leads from these norms to this question 
for whom are we telling the story? And then, of course, by extension, who is getting excluded from the story? Exactly. Yeah. I keep thinking, too, about Brian's point about how we use talking about process as a way to avoid the emotions that are generated by what we've seen or read. And we do that instead of engaging with art on a spiritual and emotional level. I love the idea of the actors, writers, creators of art, leaving the conversation to the audience. That's what really matters, the impact of the story and not what hour during the day it was written or where the author was when the idea for the story hit. This also has the added benefit of authors not having to do marketing as much. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yes. yes, yes. It just gets better and better. Well, if you're interested in seeing one of Theater of War's productions, they've been doing Zoom-based performances throughout the pandemic with incredible actors like Julie's personal hero, Francis McDormand, and yeah. yay, and Corey <laughs> Hawkins, Jeffrey Wright, Bill Murray. They're doing a bunch of shows this fall and winter on Zoom, and you can find out more about them at theaterofwar.com. And I think that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Theater of War Productions online at theaterofwar.com and on Twitter at Theater of War. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve Until at eveohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Come, come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and me.